I'm about six pages from the end of my gigantic novel, Jerusalem, uh, which is bigger than the Bible and is going to probably be just short of the complete works of Shakespeare. I'm not saying that the fact that it is of an enormous quantity means anything about the quality, but I'm just kind of going to leave that hanging in the air so that everybody else perhaps thinks that. Um, it's... Uh, I'm proud of all of my work, apart from that superhero stuff that I did that everybody else likes. Um, I don't have any copies of that in the house anymore. I can't stand to look at it. Uh, it was just too painful, too many lost friendships. The things that I'm most excited about are always the things that I'm doing right now. So that includes this film, it includes Jerusalem, it includes my other work. The stuff that I'm doing now, I genuinely think is better than anything that I've done before. Because, well, it better be really, because otherwise I'm deteriorating, aren't I? I'm Jack Allison. And welcome to the Alan Moore Podcast. That's right. We're doing a very special episode, Jack. We're doing our first ever book club on Struggle Sessions. It's been we've been thinking about doing one since we started the show, but we yes. didn't we never found the right book. Well, you know, until now we never read a one thousand page book. That we needed to break into chunks uh, to make yeah, manageable yeah. for us to do an episode about. I mean, because honestly, I mean, we tear through most of these bad boys pretty quickly. Uh, we had to wait for our boy Alan Moore to drop a cool million words yes, yeah. on us to give us something that we could really sink our teeth into, really dive into. I'm sorry. I know a lot of podcasts do things kind of childish, you know, kind of juvenilia stuff like like capital or whatever you know right. like they do yeah. like book clubs for that like right i mean it just seems a little bit rudimentary for us if yeah I'm this is all honest. stuff that i just understand you know that's stuff that we all just understand at sort of a gut level so yeah, just you know, natively who needs uh, to even go through all that kind of stuff 
Alan Moore's Jerusalem. Man, before we even talk about the book, we have to talk about how do you even deal with this book? Folks, if you've got <laughs> carpal tunnel, if you've got weak wrists, you're not going to be able to handle the hardcover. You're just not. I got the paperback, uh, and the paperback does come in a very sort of forgiving three volumes. So the paperback is really just sort of three normal sized books that you buy that, you know, come in one collected box or whatever. But I mean, this may be jumping ahead here. If we are to believe uh, in sort of the grand theory that Alan Moore is putting forth in Jerusalem itself, a version of Jerusalem that split into three paperback parts would be an inauthentic uh, version. It would change the substance of the novel yeah. and the magic that Moore is working uh, to not do the full, you know, big ass one. I do have the big ass one, but I will say that I have also been supplementing a bit uh, with the audiobook. Sure. I, I did the same, actually. Yeah. Which is quite good. Is in fact, it's an award-winning audiobook. So if that's your speed, if you're working the late shift and uh, you're listening to podcasts, hey, throw on uh, some Jerusalem. It's a very, very good audiobook. That's like a podcast that you've never discovered that's 100 episodes long. Yeah. You know, that's what like, the Jerusalem audiobook <laughs> is. I really have been enjoying you know, reading the physical book, even though I am using the unclean and untrue you know, paperback <laughs> version. But yeah, I also think that the audio book is really solid and it's such a dense work that I was like, I was kind of hesitant to do the audio book, but I think it works really well as an audio book. There's kind of something conversational in the denseness of the prose that makes it still work pretty well for an audio book. Yeah, because he more in the book uses so much stream of consciousness and you're just mm -hmm. living kind of in the world of the individual uh, characters. I think the first few chapters could be subtitled uh, Humans of Northampton because it's basically <laughs> like the humans of New York for people of different eras where we're just visit seeing a day in the lives uh, mm -hmm. of these people. At different time periods, yes. but it is very much just like yeah, bopping around Northampton, bopping to like different time periods and kind of just seeing what someone's day was like. Maybe the ever so small hint of an angel talking to them or or them catching the glimpse of a demon or something like that, which I actually, you know, honestly, let's see the first couple chapters. I actually was just finding it very interesting to see the little sketch of, you know, where Alan Moore knows very well, like the place that he has grew up and lived in his entire life. It was very cool to even just read the sort of sketch of what the place is like you know across all these different time periods yeah we'll go chapter by chapter but what i wanted to say just starting off is that even though it's a massive book and it's dealing with all these complex ideas that more has you know obsessed over his entire career it's a pretty accessible book like it's not a hard mm. read at all and not a slow read it goes by you know at fairly fast clip because it is just feeling like you're moving from time period to time period person mm -hmm. to person life to life fairly quickly and it is a lot of information and it's a lot of some of it can be a little bit jarring but alan moore mm -hmm. is just such a master wordsmith he can make this 1200 page book seem like a breeze yeah i mean you have to definitely give yourself over to that these are pretty long chapters, you know, but sort of within those chapters, they don't really feel like a slog. It's, you know, quite like poppy. And like I was saying, with regard to the audiobook, like, it, you know, the prose itself, you call it stream of conscious. 
I would say it's almost like conversational. Somebody like sitting at a bar telling yeah, you about Northampton. Yeah, there's a North lot of Hampton. that too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get into chapter one, Jerusalem. Now, chapter one won me over to the book almost immediately because this is something that Alan Moore can do that almost that very few writers can do. It's that they cannot write someone that's actually cool. Like they can tell <laughs> us someone that's cool, but they don't actually know. Most writers don't know anyone that's know like, what cool is. is. They yeah. never. They are not friends. Chuck with Wendig's English. version of cool uh, is not something I'll buy ever. It's like it's like uh, warmed over Han Solo, but instead, right. uh, we're introduced from the background through her brother, who's not as cool. Mm. Alma Warren, who <laughs> I think most people know, is a stand-in more or less right. for Alan Moore, and she is an artist slash musician which in the taxonomy of more is the same thing being the artist and magician are basically the same thing she's very cool she's trying to save the world through her paintings and she has her brother mick who's you know not doing so um well he's had he's has two problems one he's had a vision some sort of vision nightmare vision that he doesn't really talk about he died mm. once and also he thinks he's losing his mind because he's starting to see like ghosts and angels and shit right and there's a you know and this this is also a family history too we're introduced to the idea that there's a real family and that's part of what you know uh mike or i guess mick he's called mick as a nickname but i think his name is actually mike that's part of yeah. you know what his fear is is that he's losing his his mind just like the the warrens did in history yeah they're they're called uh what they i think the term they use is going around the bend yes going around the bend is that it is yeah yeah i th i like alma it's such a good point that you know it's it's so hard for writers to portray coolness <laughs> but alma actually like does come across as cool and there's a funny line in there somewhere i don't know exactly what it is but it's like her work is well liked by like you know liberals and stuff like that <laughs> yeah. and she kind of thinks they're dumb or whatever which made me feel like well okay but i like watchmen for the right reasons you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is alma give alma is alan moore given an interview at times in fact he talks alma talks about the lack of working class art in the mm -hmm. UK and how that's just disappeared and the, and the loss of that. And we don't really know what's going on in the chapter. We just know basically there's a calamity that's either coming, has happened, mm -hmm. is always happening. And or maybe all those are one and the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like maybe all those ideas are one and the same concept, really. Yeah, and if Alma's art show isn't good enough, all of reality will possibly be destroyed. That's basically where we're at. And, and what's interesting also, you know, is that I found this out. I was, I'm reading some annotations, you know, that are actually incomplete, but there's a nice little WordPress of annotations. Yeah, that's on uh, alanmorejerusalem.wordpress.com. Yes, uh, uh, recommended by Corman's Inferno. So shout out to Corman's for, for recommending that. Uh, but one thing I found in this chapter that I thought was interesting is that uh, Alma's art show, the date for it was about when Moore originally thought he was going to finish Jerusalem. So this art show is also the book itself that you're reading. Oh, cool. Now, it did take him 10 extra years, but <laughs> it was intended to be that's when he thought he was going to be finishing the work. Yeah. And I just want to say for the record, I have avoided any sort of spoilers mm. looking ahead 
theories, papers, any stuff. I want to have this, you know, kind of experience with the listeners, with you, Jack, just kind of reading and maybe checking out a little bit of the discussion. But I do want to actually, you know, read, read the book, not write the paper yes. on it yet. So I, I, I did uh, I read the whole thing and then I read my annotations before doing the episode. So I think that's going to be my method is like try to experience it the first time and then get a little more perspective before I, you know, put my voice on record about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but if you are someone who's a bit of a drowsier reader, you, the notes may help because every chapter mm-hmm. is like a different setting character place you might and and also and also more is a little bit clever with with the way he introduces even sort of like basic biographical details about the characters are kind of introduced in clever almost like sleight of handish ways you know yeah you have to pay attention i I do want to know you see what we may have been robbed of because alan moore parents made the mistake of buying him a comic book it's cl- fairly clear that this should have been as e- even though he's obviously a wonderful comic. We book. love the comics just fine, but I agree with him. He said in an interview, he's like, I think I'm built for prose. I think there's so much prose in me. And I'm like, man, even looking at like his scripts for comics, yes. like they're so long and, you know, uh, uh, detailed and meandery unnecessarily. So frankly, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you actually don't need that much description for a lot of the panels. Yeah, He's been uh, writing like books the does. whole time, basically. It's true. Yeah. Just secret books that only the artists got to see, <laughs> which is actually kind of cool. Like it's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Yes, I agree. <laughs> All right. So moving on. Uh, and so with the numbering, the chapters aren't technically numbered. So we're just going to count y'all, y'all can figure it out so we're on the book <laughs> one the burrows chapter two we'll call it the host of angles now already yes. alan moore with his weird british humor pun mm-hmm. stuff in the title you know like is people when he announced his book and it was going to be a million words long it was all all the websites promoted as like oh super pretentious alan moore is gonna write some crazy thing that no one understands and it's like this is filled with like scatological humor and jokes and shit like that yeah and and even like pop culture references and stuff like that like it is a very it's filled with humor it's it's fairly poppy i would say you know it just is dense angles of course they they use throughout the book they refer to angels as angles, which is a very simple kind of wordplay thing, uh, uh, but that you see in the title of this chapter. And of course, the angles themselves important because what we are going to find out is that there's some sort of tesseract and Northampton is the center of all reality by way of the angles of the arches and stuff that are built around there. Very cool stuff and stuff that uh, Alan Moore has been working on in a lot of his works before. You will see um, even in From Hell and Swamp Thing. I mean, From Hell, there's the great page of, you know, just like all of the angles, like the great, you know, like Tesseract intersecting over the uh, the, the map of England. Yeah, and Providence, too. Of course, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft loved talking about angles uh, as well. And Alan Moore, you know, kind of takes the idea and runs with it as well in a not always a nefarious way. This first chapter... We get to meet uh, this artist, this ancestor of 
Alma Earn, who mm-hmm. uh, we know we're told pretty early on that he went around the bend. He lost his mm-hmm. mind at some point. And they just tell us about um, his the day that he lost his mind. that was never the same again. Which, by the way, I, I this chapter, you know, even aside from the overall plot stuff, this is a great example of just like it just the slice of life stuff being really fascinating. <laughs> like what was life like, you know, in this time period? in like just a small hamlet in england we get mention of like basically that the first subway is starting to exist yeah and like and i thought it was so fascinating actually something i didn't think about but he's like it's unnatural for people to go underground he's like you shouldn't go underground unless you're dead (laughs) like so i'm just gonna walk (laughs) yeah jack i took a note of that because what struck me about that is level of like empathy alan moore shows to people Mm -hmm. dealing with change and Uh what their day-to-day lives are like so of course if you're you know just an average you know craftsman during this time period a fucking subway would freak you out shit (laughs) i mean even now like you know also by the way i don't know how many how many problems there were but the first subways like i just don't know know (laughs) (laughs) i just don't know um but yeah the the chapter's really great it basically like this guy wakes up he like shits in his like little shit shitter that he slides from under the bed his mom tells him you better get out for work today hopefully hopefully you have work because we're literally running out of food like she tells him before he leaves she's like we may not have food for you when you get back and like that's not like we're not going to have prepared food for you. That's my like we are running out of meat and we probably won't have enough for you to eat by the time you get home unless you like bring us money from the work that you do. And then, you know, as we see a lot in this book and I quite like actually, um, we get a little stroll. There's a lot of little strolls yes. in this book. <laughs> it's a walking book. It's a book It's a for walking walkers. book. It's not just about Northampton. It's about like a small part of Northampton. You know what I mean? Like he does put a map at the front the of the boroughs book showing that this is really just like, you know, a little cross section of a couple blocks. And there's really a lot of thought put into which walkways people walk down and how long that walk is going to take and exactly what they saw on that walk. We follow him as he does a little stroll um, down to um, this church to help uh, paint it. Yeah, I do have a confession to make. When it comes to reading, I've always had this problem. I am absolutely positively horrible at like imagining someone walking down the street in the directions, unless I'm actually looking at the map at the same time. I can't picture it like the layouts in my head without like a picture. I've always had that problem of reading, but this book has been fairly okay on it. He actually has not been super indulgent um, with describing that it's fairly, it's fairly breezy. Uh, more or less, and we get right into our plot where oh, poor old Ern, who we were told many times is illiterate, but he still is having this conversation with himself in his head about like justice. And I, I really like that because we know he's illiterate, he can't read, but he's like thinking to himself, isn't it fucked up that there are slaves? 
and that children are slaves in America. Yeah. And this is a man in Northampton in the UK. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, he's pondering his life, Laden life and how poor he is, how poor his mm-hmm. family is. And he thinks like, wow, there's people who have even less and are treated even worse. And like, what kind of people could do this to them? He sees, he sees a man. Um, I don't remember if he, if he sees it actively or if it's something that he's seen in the past. But he sees a, a former slave who was branded, and he has a little ponder in his head about, like, when do they brand the slave? Like, when, this is like, he saw, like, a, I believe a 13-year-old child, actually, who was branded. So he's like, when do they do the branding? How young is too young to, like, brand a human being? Which I thought, I'm like, that is fascinating. And, yeah, just like, you know, again, this kind of stream of consciousness of, like, someone in the era. You yeah, know? and showing, you know, a moral depth to a character who's supposed mm-hmm. to be illiterate, uneducated, perhaps right. not that good at his job, perhaps even, you know, a little bit, you know, lower IQ, but he still, mm-hmm. he understands like what really, you know, matters and what's really right. important. And that is why he's rewarded slash cursed. At least we think so with this vision of an angel uh, talking to him that drives him uh, more or less out of his mind and makes him He's up there retouching this painting and the painting starts to move and look towards him and talk to him and gives him and he has like almost like a seizure or a stroke mm-hmm. or something and his workmates have to bring him down and they're joking because they think he fell asleep and Alan Moore goes into detail about how oh they kind of used to pick on him and make fun of him but they never picked on him after this because when they came down and they saw his eyes they knew that something had happened it was really to him fucked that up. was yeah. really terrible yeah, I also really like um, I think this is the first, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think there's one in chapter one where we see like the angel speak, uh, which is a really fascinating, like, j- like jumbled and garbled speech, you know, that I think that like in- that includes a lot more meaning in it. Yeah, it's not the first time we see the angels speak, but it's the first time we see their kind of weird language. Oh, that's what I mean. The angel hyphen speak, uh, yeah. angel speak, yeah. angel speak. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which I also think is really fascinating in the annotations. I guess there's some form of poetry in in Chinese writing where you can read the poetry in any direction and it has different meanings. And I guess Alan Moore's talked about that before. And so the idea is that maybe the angel speak is in some way based on that, that there's like just a whole bunch of different sort of meanings. And and it's done through uh, similar sounds and things like that being thrown into the word. But ostensibly we see these like, long and very confused phrases and then we see a you know how it was like interpreted in the human in the human brain who heard it making it a little bit more clear all right so moving on uh to chapter three asbos of desire another pun for people who don't know asbo is it's a british thing it's a, mm-hmm. some sort of civil order it says anti-social behavior order so it's like I think it's like people that just are considered antisocial criminals. You know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah. like people it's like a term you'd be like, oh, that person's you know like crazy or whatever. Yeah, you yeah. Know? They're not, they're, it's like what they would do with a Britney Spears. Yes, exactly. Like yeah, yeah, she's yeah. an asbo. Yeah, <laughs> and so we follow uh, this woman named Marla, and you know I t- mentioned you know 
Alan Moore's empathy because he gives a lot of empathy to Marla, even though by all accounts, she's kind of a piece of shit. She's kind of like a bad person. She's in a bad situation yeah, and she's, she's a drug addict. You know yeah. what I mean? But, but she is not, she is nasty. Like yeah. there's not a lot of like that she's trying to do good. Or yeah. Anything like, like she's that. like racist and yeah. like just kind of, a, she's just uneducated and you know, and like in a bad situation, but yeah, she's, like a conspiracy theory believer. You know, Marla might have been there on 1-6. Marla could have been there on 1-6. Well, well, I actually don't think we're supposed to think the Diana was killed by the Royals conspiracy theory was actually that crazy, especially given... I mean, I believe it, certainly. Uh, yeah, given that she's also... Uh, Marla is obsessed with uh, the death of Princess Di and the Jack the Ripper case. And as There's we, moon landing in there, too, and, and Kennedy's in there, too. So she's a little... She's a little uh, uh, conspiracy theory you know focused yeah but if you've read from but some of that shit is real yeah yeah <laughs> but if you read from hell alan moore's theory that he uses is that it was the royal family uh that right. did the chapel hill murders so maybe maybe he's not you know t t trying to tell us that marla got it wrong and uh when <laughs> when uh it i really like this chapter because it is kind of a bit of a horror story even though we mm -hmm. don't get to see the monster but through this whole time where you know marla is we catch a glimpse we get, we catch a little bit of a glimpse but we're not quite sure but we're following this marla who's you know a sex worker she's addicted to drugs and she's looking to score but she's like i shouldn't go out because there's a mention of you know some girl who recently got murdered on the streets uh -huh. and she's like i'm not going out i'm not going out but i could go out and score here i can go out and score there and you see the kind of conflict she has within herself and the whole time we're like she's obsessing about princess die who died she's obsessing about the jack the ripper murders of sex workers at one point she sees a statue of a nude woman and noticed that his head has been chopped off and it's been dismembered mm -hmm. and she's like wow uh anytime men come around they have to come around and destroy something beautiful and what you get in the chapter of course uh as, as at least as far as you know uh, marla is a victim of a killer mm -hmm. after being talking herself out of staying indoors like she wanted to yeah i mean look this is like Marla is a tough character because you are like Marla is not that, you know, and and I, and it's interesting, actually, like I, I actually feel like I have empathy for Marla, even though Alan Moore doesn't do a lot of the sort of traditional save the cat stuff. You know what I mean? Like they don't really. Well, he gives empathy other ways. He just does it better. Yes, I agree. I agree. I'm like, you know, that's why I think this is such an interesting chapter. She's such an interesting character is that. But you can see throughout she is like like transfixed with like the precarity, you know, of like what her of what her work is. You know what I mean? Like she's she never first I thought it was interesting. She never mentions the drugs by name. It's always just like a sort of vague allusion to scoring or if I or I finished smoking and stuff like that. And then we don't even hear so like she doesn't want to go out and work, but she's not like I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. It's just talking about other girls who have been hurt and seeing like the beheaded statue and everything like that. And we get the idea that, yeah, this is like completely consuming her, like, you know, the physical precarity of the work she does. And also there is a thread throughout the book where almost everyone is compelled for some one reason or another 
to whatever it is they're doing, even if they're compelled to their death. And she, it seems mm-hmm. like she's kind of pushed towards it. Like Ern was right as as conscious as she is about like that this could happen. She just is still like magnetically drawn to the moment of it happening anyway, which also kind of speaks to like Moore's whole idea of what time is, which is that it's all just immutable and happening at the same time. Yeah, basically. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the next chapter gets into that uh, quite a bit. Rough sleepers. This will be the most confusing Very one cool. if you're not paying attention, uh, yes, playing careful yes. attention. Uh, yes, yes. Because you start off following a gentleman named Freddie Allen, and you think uh, with the title Rough Sleepers that he's someone who is unhoused. Uh, but yeah. it turns out... Well, he, he is. Technically. <laughs> technically. But actually, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> he's a ghost. He's yeah. a ghost. Yeah. And there's a lot of clever... This is one of those chapters, again, where I'm like, Moore is so... He, like, does sleight of hand in even sort of introducing these, like, big ideas about the character. There's stuff in this chapter early before the reveal kind of happens where they talk about like Freddie went through the door, you know, which is like he phrases it as Freddie went through the door as opposed to like Freddie stepped through the door. It's like he actually literally went yeah, through the yeah, door, went through but the we door. just don't know Notice. that at that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very cool uh, chapter and very fun, especially because the whole point that Alan Moore is trying to get across is that ghosts fuck. That's basically <laughs> what he's trying to say. And they still Ghosts are here and they're horny. But sadly, Jack, actually they still keep all the shame around sex with them. They're still married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sad. It's sad. Very they still sad. have to sneak around. So our boy Freddie the whole time is like trying to sneak off to see and have sex with a married woman. And he keeps running into shit and he gets gets like, fuck, I'm never going to get over there. Mm-hmm. And he even runs into a freaking monk who's like, surely, sir, you're not going to do anything lecherous because he knows he's going. He's like, uh, no, uh, <laughs> I'm obviously going to go do something very good and godly. <laughs> yes, which is something that comes across later because we find out that that monk, uh, while Freddie's talking he talks about the trails that people are leaving behind and that's what ghosts are and he talks about how this mm-hmm. monk looked different because he's actually from another time so this is right. somebody so not only as a ghost are you haunting the place you used to live you're also moving or existing well, backwards and forwards in time yes you're staying in one place but you're at every time in that place. And it almost feels like he can step into moments of his life and get to relive them. But as far as just like walking around, it doesn't feel like there's much control by ghosts over yeah. like what time period. Like he at one point talks about like a path he wants to take and he's like, oh, but it's much harder to take that now. And it's because that path doesn't exist anymore. It was like bulldozed and, you know, buildings were put up. But, you know, the the moment that you mentioned with the monk, we end up seeing, you know, the other side of that interaction in the next chapter, uh, which we'll have to come back to. But as Freddy is stepping through time, we get to see this monk see Freddy um, in the following chapter. Yeah. So before we move on to the next one, I do want right. to reiterate that Malin Moore does take the time to tell us exactly how ghosts have sex and whether they jizz or not. And just go. He's just having fun, folks. He's having fun with it. In fact, he he gleefully mentioned this in interviews leading up 
to the book when ever people asked him, well, what's it about? Of course, he would rattle off like 10 things. But of course, he would always mention it's also about ghosts having sex. <laughs> I had to determine and work out finally once and for all for the ages how ghosts have sex. Because uh, why? Why? Why even be a ghost? If you can't have sex. <laughs> There's there's also a part at the end of this chapter where Freddy ends up and we're basically watching a game of pool being played. Yes. Um, and the balls all represent people um, and people who are going to like pass away. And Freddy kind of just like knows this in his gut and becomes like very fearful about the people uh, um, that are, you know, being made to pass away. Yeah, I'm pretty sure one of the balls is meant to be Marla. I think so, too. I mean, I don't know. I don't know for sure. He just suddenly becomes very afraid in seeing this um, and, you know, in, in understanding exactly what's happening there. Yes, yes. But it is funny. It's like he is playing the game. He's out with the pub with his friends. That's what ghosts do. They go, uh -huh. they have hook up with the neighbor, neighbor's <laughs> missus, and they go to the pub. Also, the idea, because Freddie was, you know, an unhoused person in his life, and so are, Sort of the idea is that, like, he's kind of doing the same stuff as a ghost. He, like, now just is an unhoused ghost who, like, wakes up and, like, kind of walks around. Oh, and he has to find a place to sleep. Yeah. Does odd jobs for people, needs to find a place to sleep. You know, it just is, like, he remains unhoused yeah, around Northampton. The class structure, uh, and, of course, Alan Moore is always talking about class, remains when you die. <laughs> it can remain when you die as well. I'll, I'll share a little bit of uh, annotations material here, which is that Freddie Allen is specifically a real unhoused person that was mentioned in some histories of the boroughs uh, that Alan Moore, you know, uh, likely read and cited uh, or not cited, but likely read, you know, in researching this. Um, a former policeman wrote this book in living memory where he said that there was a famous character named Freddie Allen who was always sleeping under newspapers and he was kind of just a well-liked unhoused person uh, uh, in Northampton. I kind of like that. I kind of like the Alan Moore is, you know, bringing him back. I like it too. I'm like Freddie and he's using Freddie Allen's like real name. I'm like, this is kind of cool that it's like one of the only real names he uses in the book is he found this real unhoused person and he's just like literally bringing him back as a ghost to, to, you know, exist in this book. All right, so moving on to the next chapter, X marks the spot, which was my favorite chapter uh, so far because it just seems so fucking metal. And it's about a time period <laughs> that I really like. I really like this time yeah. period because, you know, it's it's the year 810, you know. Mm -hmm. This is when basically all of Europe was just like fires and disease <laughs> and being assaulted on the road and like going yeah. to die in the crusades. And this is all white people did for like a thousand years. I love uh, this time period. Alan Moore dies right in and it just sounds like hell. It sounds like dark souls. He's, yes. Yeah. This, this, there's this monk. He's on, he's carrying this bag on this holy journey. We were, we're supposed to know he's come, he's come from the east to Northampton. He's supposed to deliver it. He was been told by an angel to deliver some sort 
sort of artifact to mm. the center of your country, which is England, which apparently is Northampton. I'm I'm not sure how funny it is that Alan Moore thinks Northampton is the center of England, but I have a feeling if I grew up in the UK, I would find it very, very funny. I think <laughs> I think I think there's a little joke uh, somewhere in there, but he's he's bringing it and like there's heads spiked on the gates. He talks about uh-huh. seeing a stream dammed up with bones. He talks about like he had walked for two days and not seeing a single human being. And then when he does, it's a fucking witch in his nightmares. <laughs> and he wakes up after being bitten by a beetle. It's just like, it's, I really like this because it feels like around, you know, that time people thought the world was ending. So the idea yeah. of a post-apocalyptic or even post-apocalyptic world just in the middle of our history is something i always find interesting that's the kind of the premise of dark souls uh you know more or less and, and berserk deals with it too maybe a little bit later a couple of hundred years later than this but you, you know, know roughly kind of the same thing there have been a number of ends of history you yeah. know what i mean like there have been a number of times when history ended and everything just felt bleak and and like you know like you said uh uh, um, rivers damned with bones and shit like that, you know. Um, I like this chapter too. I also like this chapter a lot because, yeah, it's very metal and it also feels the most like a really enclosed little story uh, unto yeah. itself. You know, this, I guess, and also the urn, um, chapter two, host of angles chapter, um, both felt like the most sort of contained, uh, chapters because this one is really about a monk knowing that there's this place that he needs to deliver something in Northampton, or they call it Hamton in this one, H-A-M-T-U-N, and and kind of just journeying around Hampton, seeing it at its sort of most bleak and horrendous. <laughs> he runs into Freddy, yeah. and there's an interesting line of description where he, as a man in the year 800, kind of tries to describe what, you know, an unhoused person from the mid 1900s yeah, looks like. And he's like, his garb was so strange. It was like, there was collection of cast off stuff. Like, but that also looked weird. His hat has spouts on it or something yeah. like that. It's yeah. very, very interesting. But I, I, it was very funny because the monk is, is like kind of like an asshole. He kind of shows us like in very subtly that he's kind of an asshole. Cause you know, he has this holy mission, but he's also like very judgmental of people. And he's even judgmental of other Christians. It's like the way those other mm. Christians believe is, is fucking stupid and worthless. It's like, it's like, believe you, might as well be a pagan now that said there is a moment where he thinks badly of other monks because they do sex crimes and so i do have to stand with them on as far as that one is concerned he can be kind of a dick about that that's okay yeah but at one point he he pulls up some water out the well and it's red and he thinks that it's the blood of jesus and immediately starts crusating himself and talking about finally it's so funny he goes into a reverie and the first thing he's thinking about is like how important he's gonna be to the history of christianity he's like oh my god i found it and everyone's gonna know my name i fucking found and then he realizes it's just red dye like they have everywhere in this town yeah. there's red dye everything is dyed red and he just feels dumb yeah <laughs> like he, he he reacts to it the way that uh charlie and mac 
react to seeing the water stain on the wall and it's always sunny and it looks like the virgin <laughs> mary and they're like oh god we're gonna be so famous uh, for this and of course bless you jesus this is a miracle as well but this is gonna be very very <laughs> wow, very good we're for, gonna make a lot of money yeah very good for me <laughs> and so it, it gets a little bit stranger where the monk he's on this strange journey it seems like he's traveling through time he's meeting people on aren't there and of course our good friend one of the angels shows up with some sort of white stick and he points the direction to where the monk is supposed to go and he babbles to him a little bit and the monk uh, takes the thing there and he's like collapses describe it it's very kind of biblical because it's his journey because like they describe uh that he's not feeling well that he's been sick and ill kind of subtly this whole time that he's lost he wanders he has to ask people all these various people for directions including one person who is a ghost from the future mm-hmm. so it's a very you know kind of this holy journey that he takes and at by the time he gets to the end it's pouring down raining it's the third church he's been to the brothers let him in and he collapses uh, and dies, but having delivered the relic, and we learned that he got the relic from Jerusalem. He did get to like have a little, you know, vision of like an angel or something like that before, you know, passing away on his feet. Yes, he ha- he had come from Jerusalem. I think it was in this chapter he refers to it as Palestine, or is that, oh, yeah, or see, is that in? Uh... Yeah, I think it's in early on because there are uh, there's a dream of the past early mm-hmm. on. I think where it's referred. I'm like searching through the ebook now. Uh, and yes, Alma has a memory of someone who was far away from somewhere far away, like Palestine. Yeah. And then later in, and then again in this chapter, um, he says it's a richer red than anything he glimpsed in Palestine. Palestine. Yes, yes, so yes. It is very specifically. He came from Palestine with this uh, relic. Yes, yes, yes. So I do like the, even for a book called Jerusalem, Oh, uh, I'm sorry. The window just uh, minimized. I thought I got disconnected. Okay. Uh, even for a book called Jerusalem, he like doubles down on that Jerusalem is Palestine. <laughs> yeah, Jerusalem is, is in Palestine, yes. All right. So that was the first five chapters of Jerusalem. Folks, tell us what you think. Please hit us up on Twitter in the Patreon comments, in the Substack comics, uh, in the Gmail. Please tell us what you think of the book join us on the discord we're going to keep rolling on we're going to you know i got a little preview for the next chapter because i thought we were doing one more and i just i'll just tease it because you know maybe it'll excite people the next chapter's viewpoint character is probably charlie chaplin (laughs) i'm excited for that i'm excited for that that's cool that's cool so this is a very fun book. We're going to do next time. We'll do another five chapters. So thank you cool. so much for joining us on the Alan Moore podcast and our Jerusalem book club. Peace. I'm a geezer. Bodge job the builder. Ain't none better. So cool gangster. I'll put trees in your cellar. I a napper popping bottles. What's good fella? You play the decoy. I'll take food from the cellar. Top lad. Oi, 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 oi. Oi, girl, what's your ploy? That man's your boy. I'll slap, man, way too coy. Three lines, real McCoy. Your EDL, real English boy. St. George's flag, Doc Martins, boy. Call a slag, but don't mean it, boy. Don't ask, don't get. How you get? Nice things. Life moves fast. Roundabouts and swings. Swings and roundabouts. You're round, my kid. Grassing always greener where the other side lives. Nothing great about Britain. 
tea and biscuits. Mash jelly eels and a couple little trinkets. East End Phil Mitchell gets stabbed with the Phillips. Hand on my heart, I swear I'm proud to be British. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.